The Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hi, my name is Amber. I work at the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of this episode where we hear directly from small ranchers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the livestock they raise and use across the state. In this episode, we connect with Beth Reynolds of the Goat Girls, a woman-owned and operated contract grazing operation located on California's central coast to learn more about her successes and challenges with long-term viability of the targeted grazing industry, especially as it relates to fire preparedness and fuels management. Over the last decade, California has experienced the most dangerous, destructive, and environmentally hazardous wildfires in the history of the state. Prescribed grazing is a versatile and ecologically-based wildfire mitigation strategy with scientifically proven benefits to the environment, soil, and greenhouse gas reduction goals. Prescribed grazing complements other vegetation management practices through the reduction of fuel loads and implementation in areas where controlled burns are considered too risky or not appropriate for the ecosystem. Later in the episode, we join Senator Monique Lamone who represents District 19 in Santa Barbara County. She authored Senate Bill 675 and introduced it in February of this year in order to enhance wildfire mitigation efforts by expanding statewide prescribed grazing efforts. But first, here's Beth Reynolds. So I grew up on an acre in a suburban neighborhood. My parents were uh, administrators and we did 4-H. I did dairy goats. And uh, we had pony and ducks and chickens and all of this stuff on one acre. And then I came here to Cal Poly to get a degree in animal science and to be a vet, that was the plan. And then I had one class where they necropsied a horse and I stood at the door and I didn't want to get any closer And the teacher said, go on and get in there. And I said, I don't want to do this. This isn't the right thing for me. I literally left, went to my advisor and was like, what else can I do in animal science? And he was like, well, you can get a minor in range management. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Sounds good. Sign me up. It just came together. I learned about soil, I learned about plants. I mean, I just loved that material and heard about grazing um, to control weeds and brush. And then one summer I saw goats on campus and I tracked down this older guy who was hired to, to graze around the dorms to do a fire break. The older man, Howard, knew a lot about grazing. But Beth noticed that his goats were causing erosion and damaging trees because their movement was not managed in an intentional manner. Howard was her first mentor, but she showed an aptitude for the work which impressed him. And he had a bunch of border collies and 150 goats. And so we started working together. I ended up doing a senior project on grazing and he taught me everything. And it was time to graduate. And Howard was like, why don't you do this? And it just was so overwhelming. I'm like, doesn't cross my mind at all. 
the dogs, the goats, the vehicles, like the clients, having a business. It was a lot. So he actually went to my mom and my dad and said that I was good with the animals. I was good with the border collies. And so my parents pitched it to me that this was a plan that they would support if I was interested. And I was like, okay. Graduated in 2005. I bought Howard's goats and truck and trailer and he helped me for years. And I just kind of learned as I went. There are two commonly used terms for the type of grazing Beth conducts with her livestock, prescribed herbivory and targeted grazing. Not everyone agrees which term is best. Public-facing resources often differ from scientific efforts, but typically they both identify certain ecological and fuels management objectives for a particular site, taking several factors into account. I'm not a fan of the prescribed herbivory, but targeted grazing, vegetation management is what I always called it. I mean, I think the terminology is important to be consistent with, that people understand it across the board. You know, this concept of what grazing is, improvement to habitat, improvement to ecosystem processes. I think there's room for improvement on how we call it, but my focus is targeted grazing. Probably the most important trait is to be observant, to be able to anticipate things, read your animals, you know, understand the land or what's happening with it, um, and understanding your impact on the land. I think I, you know, I drive back by job sites months after I've done them just to see what they look like. I like to constantly be getting feedback on how we're grazing and then the plant community is changing, the types of, of plants, the percent bare soil, you know, new trees that pop up. I mean, it's rewarding to see projects that I've done for 20 years, you know, and I can see what's changed. And it's not like a field of perennial grasses. It's not, but it's not 100% mustard anymore. There's biodiversity. I don't, I don't feel like we're gonna get back to just perennial plants everywhere we go, but it's, completely about adapting to what's right in front of you and knowing how to manage it so yeah but I love that I think it's really fun I I believe in it 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 was a passion for sure it is taxing for sure and my family worries how much I work but I think I just really believe in grazing I like grazing and I just want to keep doing it until I feel like I've made my mark. After graduating from Cal Poly with a degree in rangeland resource management, Beth stayed in the area and remained in touch with a lot of her professors. And some of them would visit her at job sites. One day, she heard that one of her old professors was planning to retire and a position was opening up in the same program. And he called me and said, I think you should apply. And again, I was like, I can't be a lecturer, but he was like, I, you know, need someone that can graze. So I made the choice to focus on Cal Poly. I, you know, had a much calmer lifestyle. I didn't have to go out in the middle of storms. The Cal Poly Sheep Center, where Beth holds the operational classes, includes barns and corrals for managing the sheep. But most importantly, the paddocks. Cal Poly sheep are rarely, if ever, inside a barn. Instead, 
100 ewes graze over 140 acres of irrigated pasture and open rangeland at Cheetah Ranch. Cal Poly sheep graze in their natural environment using plans created and implemented by students. The Cal Poly sheep unit is pretty much the same as it was when I was a student. It was a really great experience for me, just getting to see more livestock production beyond just dairy goats. Um, and certainly the sheep were most similar to my experience with goats. It's that time of year where everyone's out in pasture, everyone's out breeding, they're out in the hills and our grazing projects on campus. It's a really special opportunity for students here to get real hands-on experience. It made a big impact in my life. And what I teach my students is that you have goals, you're managing to achieve those goals. And it's different than feeding your sheep, putting them out in pasture, and keeping them fat and happy. You are doing a job. After just a couple years of teaching, Beth started getting calls from old grazing clients asking for her services. Because she had built strong early relationships with those clients, it was easy for her to jump back in. I said, no, I got out of it. And they were like, well, we need someone to come graze the Lopez Dam. There's no one, you know, to do it. And, and there, there hasn't been people around here. So, I don't know, I felt like an itch to get back into it or know that I could pretty much pick up where I left off. This time, Beth was able to balance running her own business while still teaching, which allowed her to continue mentoring future livestock operators, but still get out on the land and live the grazer lifestyle. In California, first-generation ranchers have a serious set of barriers, which include access to land, capital, infrastructure, a well-trained workforce, and support mechanisms. That's why grazing operations are starting to take on a variety of forms, such as collective formats. But single operators are still prevalent, and they tend to hold a strong individualistic mindset. I tend to be pretty independent and do things my way, and you know, I have like a certain way of building my fence and I teach my students and then they start doing new things and I'm like, this is how we do it. Locally here, I think there is a lot of opportunity for a co-op of grazers and just something I don't have time to put all the pieces together, but I think it has a lot of merit. The very same fire break that Howard and Beth used to graze around the Cal Poly campus is now handled by the students in the sheep unit. Beth keeps her private operation mostly separate from the university, but on occasion, they share resources and support. I did the fire break, and now Cal Poly does the fire break, or I do it with the students and the Cal Poly sheep and goats. So, and then we graze the solar array here is 20 acres, and we manage that as well. But we don't go off campus. That's been the question is that from the community is, oh, can you just take these goats around in people's backyards? But it's a liability, and I don't know how we would manage all that uh, logistically with students having classes and stuff. Yeah, we're two separate entities. Like, we use the same bucks and the same rams. I buy some of Cal Poly's animals, and there's a lot of like blurred lines between us because either energizer breaks, I'll go home and grab one that, ha you know, or they have my panel right now. And so, I don't know, it just works. And everywhere I go, there's sheep and goats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
As with most grazing operations, there is a livestock threshold after which a solo operation is just not feasible. But until that line is crossed, it's often challenging for grazers to afford additional labor support. So I used to just do it all on my own. I had 300 goats for a long time and I just did everything. Occasionally over the summer, I'd hire somebody part-time, but it was just financially hard to do that. The contracts, the money wasn't there to have employee. Now I've grown, we've got new contracts that are sizable enough and I've just quadrupled my herd. So I have way more animals to do more stuff. So I have two employees now. Grazing livestock breeds differ for a variety of reasons. If the operation is primarily for meat production and is remote, a hardier breed is necessary. But if the operation focuses on fuel reduction, a mixture is often used to get broader benefits across vegetation and landscape types. Beth explains her flurred approach, a term used for operations that mix goats and sheep together. I started with Barbado sheep. They're very hardy, very good mothers, parasite resistant. They're really wild. So that and then meat production, I wanted to use the Dorper and I had seen that here at Cal Poly. And so I've been breeding with the Dorper ever since. Um, but yeah, I mean, we hardly hoof trim, deworm, just feed them, keep them moving and they're good. I raised boar goats for a long time because there's a big market for breeding and for meat. Um, And then I went to the Browsing Academy and uh, Anne Pachel was there and she talked about the Kiko. And I went and found a Kiko buck that year and used it. I mean, they were just running as soon as they were born. They have a trait called Kid Vigor. And I mean, they come out ready to go. Like they're nursing in five minutes and they're you know, and they're very prolific and then parasite resistant. So I'm a big fan of the Kiko, but I've mixed it up. I went to Texas and got a couple Savannah goats. So I like a Heinz 57 for sure. I'm not a purebred person. Yeah. Livestock operators have an opportunity to have multiple market channels for their services, including food, fiber, and fuel reduction. Although Beth focuses on grazing for fire mitigation primarily, she occasionally sells her animals for meat. However, many small operators encounter butchering facility constraints and food safety regulation issues. The meat sale is kind of just a secondary thing. I guess that's kind of my retirement plan is to like not do so many projects and be more focused on meat production, but I'm not like certified anything. And, you know, honestly, the customers I do have aren't asking for it. So I try to do as much direct as possible. I mean, there's Filipino market, Hispanic, um, Muslim. So those are my main customers. They find me. There are times where I'll sell to a feedlot. Like a big rig will come pick up a load and take them, so. We don't have a lot of opportunity here for large scale butchering, so, and, and the cost of it. But most of my customers want to butcher their animals themselves. With the number of animals that I have now, if we tried to keep doing direct, it would be a whole other person to manage all that. 
Beth says this work requires many different skill sets, which can be challenging for folks who tend to prefer the hands-on aspect. I've worked with the Small Business Administration for a long time and uh, mentors and, you know, it's just been a good resource to have. Um, and there's stuff you don't really want to do, um, like bookkeeping, but you got to do it. Targeted grazing is a powerful tool for wildfire mitigation and improving community resilience. However, contract grazers like Beth, who are out with their animals in fire-prone areas, are often at risk and experience those threats firsthand. There's been a couple scares on projects where a fire uh, was nearby, and it, you know, it really makes you scramble through what your plan is. Um, there was one house I was grazing in a neighborhood and uh, I saw the smoke and ran over and they had all of this uh, gorilla hair bark and it just took off up to the house and I grabbed hoses and was trying to help them fire department was coming but I was like I gotta go I gotta go figure out where I'm gonna take my goats because I'm not gonna haul them all out right now and you know, that's the thing. I mean, my trailer fits 60 at a time. Most of my job sites are 300, so it's five loads, you know, five hours at least. There's people that have trailers nearby I could call, um, and I have reached out to have a list of people that could help me if something happened. I guess my thought would always be just to take them back to a spot we had already grazed or some dirt patch and hope that they hang tight. Yeah, it's a scary thing. Um, and, and employees, too, you know, having people out there, um, I mean, afraid that they're going to start something is one concern, but then also just for their safety, what, you know, they would do. It's a lot having an employee. Here at Cal Poly, we had birds get into some power lines, and those caught fire and landed on a bush and burned up a whole hillside quick. I mean, it happens so fast at Cal Poly where I'm supposed to train my students. I've had to learn, like, what is safe? What is safe to other people? Because my comfort level versus their comfort level is very different. So definitely, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, don't do it. Um, we have fire extinguishers in the trucks, and I show them how to use that and be mindful of, like, where they're driving when they're driving through dry grass. And then if something did happen, like, what would the response be, ideally? So it's, you know, and, and then if we really were impacted significantly by smoke, some people are going to be fine with it. Some people are not going to be okay out working with it. And that's where being the owner kind of sucks because guess who gets to do everything, you know? Animals got to move, animals got to be taken care of, and, you know, that's what happens when they call in sick or, you know, the storm is really bad and, you know, they don't want to go out in it. It's, it's the owner, it's me, to go do it. So, yeah. This winter, um, there was flooding, and they were like, no, you can't go, and I said, I've got animals up here, and I had to park at Home Depot, hike up over the mountain and go check on them. But yeah, it's like, I need to give to my animals or they could end up on the freeway.
This fall, I had the opportunity to join Senator Monique Lamone on a field tour of a grazing operation next to a rural school in Ventura County, where she spoke with Cole Bush, co-founder of Grazing School of the West, and Chris Danch, executive director of the Ojai Valley Fire Safe Council. They discussed options for Senate Bill 675 to help integrate prescribed grazing into some of the state's existing wildfire resilience programs and strategies by supporting long-term funding mechanisms, outreach, education, workforce development, infrastructure, and planning. The bill also seeks to increase consultation between state agencies implementing wildfire resilience programs and rangeland ecology, fire, and prescribed grazing specialists. Here's Cole and Chris speaking to Senator Lamone. Thank you so much for authoring that bill. And it was it was uh, beautifully written, executed as a grazer. And I think that with more time, more education, more public awareness, we will have success. There's two sides of the of the pasture, the agricultural pasture. The one side is that many areas were overgrazed, mm-hmm. and those areas now have been replaced, you know, by flashy annual fields that lead fire very quickly into the chaparral in the right conditions. One of the most vital elements to what we're doing here is not just to provide a service, but we are very passionate about education and training for new vocational pathways. Mm -hmm. Each one of my shepherds is a first generation agrarian. So how do we sustain these types of things, right? So the grazing can be a livelihood for the person raising those animals, either for the contract services, but also for food and fiber. They're also at the same time reducing fuel loads and helping watersheds and all that kind of stuff. So when I came to the wildfire thing just a few years ago, mm-hmm. was like, okay, here's a pathway in to this integration, putting, changing the way communities work together and the way animals integrate to the landscape and the community relates to them. Well, and I agree with you. And I think that that's also some of the public misconception now, that when people hear grazing, they think of some of the methods that, you know, maybe by cattle, and that's like the image they have. So we've had to work, you know, even amongst like supporters to say, hold on, this is not about deteriorating an area so much, right? It's about a healthy way um, of trying to minimize uh, some of the impact that we have with wildfires, with overgrowth, um, that is actually much more gentle. We use a formula, we prescribe how we're going to do something based off of what our goals are. So. For example, a lot of these pastures used to be actively hay. They have been abandoned and they've been fallow. And when you have unhealthy soil, what's yeah. going to come up yeah. is the invasive species, which are the most flashiest of fuels. But slowly but surely, before the seed heads of the mustard and the star thistle seed out and spread out, the best way to start reducing that proliferation is grazing because it goes through the animal's digestive system and it's rendered non-viable. And so, and they're fertilizing, starting to make the soil better. What other machine can do that? And our management is not just what's the dollars and cents on how many lambs we can sell or how many acres we graze, but our positive impact on the ecology, because if we have a ecology imbalance, we have healthy animals and we have healthy people. And we also have more fire safe, fire ready ecology. Cole shares with the senator some workforce development ideas and ways that legislation can support a robust domestic labor force. I think that we're in a moment of time where we need to support the trades 
we just had a shepherd's boot camp uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, I've been dreaming of how do I help spread the, the gospel of grazing for good because this business model really allows people to start these businesses who might not have land access. Um, one of our cool projects from this past year was um, we partnered with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to serve about 80 acres around some of the most fire hazardous, fire prone areas around the facilities. I think I could speak for all of us is that choosing this work is our form of being climate activists. You can say it's a green job, but it's more than that. It's a lifestyle. We return to our conversation with Beth Reynolds, proprietor of the Goat Girls, to hear her thoughts on how targeted grazing operations like hers on the Central Coast can best be supported long term. Biggest desires would be large contracts, multi-year, definitely. I know that there are HOAs, there are large scale areas that we could be grazing, but we're not. And then definitely like realizing that this is a really good opportunity and the way that cities are designed to accommodate grazing would be really cool and even permanent fencing. Beth believes state and local governments could do more to support grazers. I think there's just a lot of opportunity to support the industry in ways that only the government can. It's just too much for people to try to figure out or some association to form and try to put it together. It's definitely in need of recognition and support. A good start, Beth says, would be more public funding for grazing projects. I think a lot of city and county want to do stuff, but they don't have funding or having some sort of incentive for them to, to utilize grazing where it's appropriate. Being more willing to, you know, add projects, you know, graze like state parks. And yeah, definitely workforce development is a big one. Um, I think grants, like startup grants for people, um, specifically for this industry would be helpful. And then education, big time on education. You gotta be able to teach people that stuff um, and have somewhere to do it and have mentorship. And so I think the university or community colleges having access to support and funding for a program like that would be really helpful. I would say finances is a big part of it. The Fire Safe Council has been able to support some of my projects. I think there's opportunity for more of that. Um, and I know there's a lot of communities that just don't really understand where grazing fits in. So I think there's a little bit of just lack of knowledge of how grazing would work. I mean, the questions I get from HOA meetings, you know, or misunderstandings that they're gonna like get out and eat the rose bushes or climb on their cars. Uh, there's a lot of benefit to what they're doing and that it's managed. And so I think um, people understanding that more, but I'm I still feel like there's still resistance to grazing 
So some people I think I've approached have tried grazing and it didn't go well. You know, they didn't do a good job or the animals did get out or I don't know, whatever shenanigans happened that they don't want to pursue it anymore. Um, and that's unfortunate. But I think there are people that are in positions to significantly engage grazing and don't. CEQA, or the California Environmental Quality Act, was created to disclose to the public any significant environmental effects of a proposed development and implementation project. The goal is to prevent or minimize damage to the environment, but it is often cost-prohibitive and time-consuming. Grazing projects that include heavy regulatory requirements are usually not feasible for smaller operators. Some of these challenges we face with lawsuits or environmental concerns that um, it's not blown out of proportion. Beth walks us through some of the CEQA and Regional Water Quality Control Board challenges she encountered while involved with a vegetation management grazing project in the Salinas River next to downtown Paso Robles. She worked closely with environmental consultants and fire professionals to address wildfire threats originating in the urban riparian corridor. I think CEQA is very uh, overwhelming to people to, to deal with and abide by and get the permit for it. I mean, I, I learned a lot with JNs on the Paso project, and it made me realize like the Water Quality Control Board didn't really understand what we were doing. And it would be nice that, like, they got educated or they came out in the field and actually saw what we were doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think the permitting can be a little bit difficult depending on the site. Staff from the local branch of the Upper Salinas Las Tablas Resource Conservation District have pioneered some creative workarounds by securing district-wide programmatic CEQA permits for operators like Beth, hoping to conduct important grazing work in riparian zones. It's reasonable for people to do projects now. Sometimes if they have to do CEQA, just everything stops or just gets put off till next year. I appreciate that the Resource Conservation District can do things like that to help support projects. And yeah, it takes a team of people to make it all come together. You know, there's things like not being 20 feet from the water's edge and sometimes that's been really tricky just because it's like a puddle of water. Yeah, like areas that it's impacted the way my my enclosure gets laid out to where it creates like a bottleneck. And if the animals get spooked, they could push the fence over. And then the bird nesting. I mean, we had a red-tailed hawk. We had to do a thousand foot buffer and we had to get the goats around without scaring the birds. Fish and Wildlife wanted us to load up the animals, 700 animals, and haul them a thousand feet down the road. And I said, well, that's crazy. I'll just walk them on the road. Like, give me five minutes and I'll walk them down the river road. And then luckily the biologist said that she would stay there with the bird and then we'll just respond if it you know needs to be so everything went fine we did have another restriction that was if it rained according to the rule from the water quality control board that the animals had to be removed from the riverbed and 
stay away until things are dry. Well, it's sand, so it does dry very quickly. But yeah, moving animals off of a project, taking them up the road to some spot and then bringing them back, I don't know. It's hard on the animals. I mean, there's times I would say they need to get out of the riverbed, you know, I'll do that. But it's a passing shower. It's like 20 minutes of rain, really? So again, I think people understanding what's going on down there. I mean, I, I'm a very like concerned practitioner. Like I'm just, I'm very aware of the animal impact, the erosion, tree girdling. Earlier this year, CAF, along with a coalition of 35 organizations representing rural counties, resource conservation districts, fire safe councils, environmental groups, and schools helped stop some bad legislation from taking effect that would have unintentionally put goat grazing businesses and herders out of work by requiring a monthly minimum wage of over $14,000 for herders. Currently, herders make a minimum monthly wage of about $4,500 per month, which includes overtime, plus free housing, food, and cell service. The fear is that communities vulnerable to wildfires will be unable to afford the services of grazers who employ goats as the most environmentally friendly means of wildfire fuel control. Beth provides her perspective on this particular industry concern. I have been hearing about the herder wage issue for years. I've never had a herder, but now that I'm living on job sites, <laughs> I mean, it was cool for a little while living in the trailer by the riverbed, but, um, you know, I rushed back to teach and I got to go take care of other animals. So yeah, it's not my highest and best use to be the person staying on site. And I think with the number of animals that I have, 150, 300 goats get out, eh, it's not a big deal. 700, 1,000 goats get out, you got to be there. So I've definitely been thinking about a herder and what that would mean for me. If it's really gonna be $14,000 a month, if nothing else, we'll just lose goats. People will just run sheep. And people have already gotten out of goats because of that. But we need our goats. I, I like sheep, but goats can do some stuff that sheep can't. And, and together they're even better. Ranching isn't for everyone, and prescribed grazing projects are no exception. Traditionally, the industry has relied on herders from countries with a long history of livestock management, primarily through the H-2A Temporary Agricultural Workers Visa Program. But there are a lot of folks interested in developing alternative pathways for domestic workers that are a good match for shepherding jobs. I just have kind of felt like the program was going to end. It just seemed like... It wasn't gonna be available anymore and I'm just gonna have to hire people here and figure out some staggering of shifts that we get the work done. Um, but I am encouraged by the Sunset trailer bill. I mean, hopefully it gives us some time to put together the things that they're asking for. Um, but for the industry, it's essential. I mean, you can't run thousands, millions of these animals without people being there with them. And I, I think it's for the betterment of the animals, for the job to, to have that. I've talked with people about programs 
uh, I don't know, felons or veterans, you know, that need a job opportunity. So I think for the right person, it can work. I mean, that you got you got to be out there. You're lambing, you're kidding, storms are coming in, you know, and there, there's an emergency, wildfire, pack of dogs is there, you know, like it's, I think the H-2A workers have worked well for the program and they come from countries where the U.S. dollar is three times their currency. And so, I mean, I've been to Peru. I see the way people live in Peru and with what they make here, they're doing really well. And I think there's an angle from the herders that I don't feel like it gets shared that like they want this program, you know? I mean, a lot of these sheep outfits that have had herders for generations, I mean, they're, you know, they have multiple generations working for them are just, you know, love it. And they're taking care of their family back home and it's a really good situation. Due to a last minute amendment request from CAL FIRE, SB 675 was put on pause on the assembly floor until next year. In a strange legislative twist, however, another bill, AB 297, passed with three elements of SB 675 copied into it, including the definition of prescribed grazing and the addition of training on prescribed grazing as an eligible outreach and education activity in the Wildfire Prevention Grants program. The remaining elements of SB 675 that did not pass include 1. The requirement for the Range Management Advisory Committee to develop guidance to support local and regional governments, parks, and other public lands managers in developing prescribed grazing plans. 2. For CAL FIRE to increase outreach for projects that include prescribed grazing in its Wildfire Prevention Grants program. Three the requirement for CAL FIRE to make perimeter fencing and watering improvements to support prescribed grazing as an eligible expense within the Wildfire Prevention Grants Program, and four, the requirement for the state's Wildfire Task Force to develop a strategic action plan by 2025 to expand the use of prescribed grazing to protect fire-threatened communities. You know, once it was recognized by CAL FIRE as an official method to reduce fuel, that felt like, okay, now everything's gonna change. So yeah, I think um, anything to support and incentivize the use of it is good. I think it's just people realizing that this is like ongoing. It doesn't need to be these spurts, chunks of huge money to go in and do these projects. I don't know that Cal Fire is maybe the right entity to run all the funding through. I guess I, I just think that having grazing as kind of an ongoing large scale deal that's just not, I see a lot of projects get grazed and then nothing for years or masticated or control burn and then for 20 years and they haven't done anything since and it was like why did we spend sixty thousand dollars for one year of protection we talk about carbon markets and sequestering carbon and you know how grazing can improve water cycle or water infiltration and so i think the more that we learn about that and learn how to graze to get those benefits 
you know, in 20 years from now, I feel like we'll be way better off and that maybe the price could be justified even more. That This is helping the environment, that we're recharging our aquifers and creating biodiversity and creating good habitat for wildlife. I mean, if all of those things got accounted for, is it really that much money? Beth shares some advice for anyone wanting to get into grazing. Definitely make sure you want to do it by going out and probably working with someone that does it. Or I see a lot of people try to reinvent the wheel. If you want to get into it, there are a lot of people out there. I'm on the targeted grazing committee for the Society of Range Management, and we go to different states every year for our annual meeting. Some people jump right in and get a thousand goats and get a job and go for it. And other people start with 50. And I mean, that's kind of what I did. I just did jobs that fit my herd size and got a feel for it. But the challenge is uh, just getting to scale to be financially feasible. You know, you just can't afford to have employees to take on all the debt of buying truck and trailer and fencing and think that you're gonna pay that off with 100 animals. And I hear a lot of my students say that they wanna ranch and farm, and you know, I just encourage them to like, go volunteer, go do it, get a feel for it. Cause I know a lot of them don't really know what it takes and they're not gonna wanna go buy land and then find out that it's just way too much work and now they own 20 acres. Grazers like Beth face a lot of challenges but they also have incredible aspirations. With a resilient attitude and by calling for state-level support and education, they can make a difference to help stabilize and grow the industry. I like to work hard. My family on both sides were farmers and I just feel like it's in me. I just wanna work hard and there's nothing I've ever done that's made me feel like I'm, I'm doing enough except for this, you know? So I like working with my hands. I like working outdoors. I love all the animals and working on the land. I mean, it's just really rewarding and there's nothing else that's given me that satisfaction. And feeling like I'm making a difference, you know? Being a part of my community, you know, sharing that with people kids, you know, seeing the goats and learning about what I do. And I mean, it just is a really good feeling to keep going every day. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org forward slash the farmers beat forward slash. That's B-E-E-T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. This podcast project was funded by a grant from the Resources Legacy Fund, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that partners with leaders in philanthropy, communities, government, science, and business to promote smart policies and secure equitable public funding for the environment, climate change resilience, and healthy communities. Thank you.